It's great to see uh, such, a, um, such a full turnout uh, for what looks to be a very exciting event. Um, so this uh, event is co-hosted by the International Inequality Institute and the Joseph Roundtree Foundation um, on the subject of toxic inequality in the United States, economic um, inequality and racial in- injustice driving ugly politics. Um, the event is going to be video recorded, so if you don't want to be heard, then don't speak. Um, but otherwise, there will be chances for you, for you to put questions at the end. Um, and at the very end, after we've exhausted your questions, there will also be um, a book, book sale and book sign, signing outside. So you can hold out for that. Um, so it's with great pleasure that I introduce our speaker and our discussant here tonight. Uh, so Dr. Thomas Shapiro is Director of the Institute on Assets and Social Policy and the Pocras Professor of Law and Social Policy at the Heller School for Social Policy, Brandeis University. Professor Shapiro's primary interest is in racial inequality and public policy. He is a leader in the wealth and race field with a particular focus on closing the racial wealth gap. With Dr. Melvin Oliver, he wrote the award-winning Black Wealth, White Wealth, which received the 1997 Distinguished Scholarly Publication Award from the American Sociological Association. The Hidden Cost of Being African-American, How Wealth Perpetuates Inequality in 2004, was widely reviewed. He co-authored a groundbreaking study, The Roots of the Widening Racial Wealth Gap, Explaining the Black-White Economic Divide. And in 2011, he was awarded a Fulbright Scholarship to study the wealth gap in South Africa. It's a very wide-ranging research on the topic. And um, tonight, uh, Dr. Shapiro is going to talk about his widely anticipated book, Toxic Inequality, How America's Wealth Gap Destroys Mobility, Deepens the Racial Divide, and Threatens Our Future, which was published in March of this year. And when he has spoken, uh, some commentary and discussion, and relating, I think, more to the UK context, is going to be provided uh, by um, Samila Bangdawala. She is Deputy Director of the Strategy and Insights Race Disparity Unit at the Cabinet Office, leading on the Prime Minister's priority projects tackling racial disparities in public services. She holds director roles at UNESCO UK, Concern Worldwide UK, Government Statistical Service, and she's Honorary Research Fellow at the University of Manchester. So she's pretty busy. She has previously held senior policy and management roles in the British government, United Nations in Sudan and Nepal, and, in leading, and for leading think tanks, the Brookings Institute, Open Society Foundation, and Young Foundation. I'm very excited to hear what she will have to say. So without more ado... Oh, no, no, sorry. Without, with one more ado. The hashtag, the all-important hashtag. Um, so if you want to tweet, the hashtag is LSE Shapiro. So feel free to tweet away, but only about this um, subject. <laughs> so... Now, without more ado, and keeping your phone on silent. Good evening. It is indeed a, a pleasure to be here, um, and uh, it's great to see so many people turn out at, at this hour and with, with the, the London traffic. Uh, I'm very impressed. Um, I also definitely want to congratulate, and I'm honored that um, uh, the International Inequalities Institute and the Roundtree Foundation has seen fit to, uh, to present me and to uh, give us the opportunity to have a conversation about racial inequality, uh, both in the United States and in the UK. And maybe at the end of the evening, we might have an opportunity to see where some of the similarities are and where some of the uh, the uniquenesses exist as well, Um, especially in terms of how sources are similar or not and how some of the remedies that are being approached are are similar or not. I plan to do, in, in about 40 minutes... Um, four quick ideas here. 
Uh, one is I'm going to talk a bit about what I think is some of the crucial data, and there'll be three or four slides that, that relate to that, which I would very much like to draw your eyes to. Um, I want to talk about the sources of the inequality and the data that I talk about and the context upon which uh, the, the, the data sits in. Um, I then thirdly want to talk, uh, which I think for me is kind of a high point and what I would like to see is a high point of my presentation. I want to talk a little bit about narrative. I want to talk a little bit about how we understand the inequalities that we're looking at. And then finally, um, I want us to uh, move our eyes to how we bend the arc to justice. And that's a phrase that was often used by uh, somebody I highly respected in the United States, Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, that combined uh, both his sense of economic justice, uh, racial justice, and uh, the, the very deep uh, uh, faith foundation upon which that was founded for, for him. So let me dive right in. Um, and I know the data is obviously going to look a little different in the UK and, and the United States. But I want to start us off with a sense of, of um, galloping inequality in the United States. The United States currently is at historically high levels of both income and wealth inequality. And I'm going to focus mostly this evening on, on wealth, and I'll tell you why momentarily. But what I really want to draw your attention to at the moment is the chart in front of you, where um, what it tells me, the story that it tells, is that as wealth was being produced and generated and growing pretty dramatically in the United States from essentially the post-World War period up until the early 1970s, that wealth was generally dispersed through the wage in somewhat of, a, in somewhat of an equitable manner. So that the hourly wage went up somewhat in tune, very close in tune with how wealth was being generated. And that's simply a, a, a notion of uh, perhaps a growing economy, perhaps a notion of a kind of social policy that, and a kind of labor organization that allowed uh, the wealth to be distributed through the hourly wage in a relatively equitable manner. But something, a lot of things changed. And it, it was, I would suggest, um, not a sudden change, but a glacier change that finally becomes evident in the early 1970s in the United States, where the lines on the chart starts to diverge. And we start to see a great divergence in terms of inequality, where the hourly wage no longer keeps pace with how wealth is being produced and generated in the United States. And th this is the era, if you will, the beginning of the 1970s, that ushers in a period of what I would call extreme, or the title of the book, toxic inequality in the United States. And what we're looking at in front of you is, is it's represented in terms of the, uh, in terms of the hourly wage. I want to talk and focus a bit about uh, financial wealth in the United States. And by wealth, I simply mean everything that a family owns of financial value minus all of its debts, including homes, including home equity. And I would like to stipulate very quickly here that for the broad middle classes of the United States, about the 40th to the 80th percentile, two-thirds of its wealth is not in the form of stocks or bonds or savings accounts. It's in the form of home equity, a profoundly institutional mechanism uh, bordered by, by federal or state policy. So what we see in front of us is the median, half above, half below, um, net wealth by race in the United States. And I've just put up 
um, three bars here, if you will. Net wealth for white families at the median, again, about $171,000. For African-American families, $17,600. And for Hispanic families, uh, about $20,700. A quick translation. What that means is that African-American family, the typical African-American family, has about a dime in wealth for every dollar of wealth that the typical white family has at the median, again. And I'm going to dive into that a little bit in a moment or two. Wealth is important here. It's important here because wealth serves firstly as an emergency protection, as emergency social and economic protection for individuals and families. When things go wrong, the wage usually doesn't pay for it. In fact, in the United States, most American families have nothing at the end of the month after they've paid all of their expenses. There's very little left over to convert to wealth or to invest in any kind of sense that way. So wealth is important first as that protection, but it also serves other crucial factors. It provides economic stability. It, it tempers the volatility of income. It tempers the volatility of not working full hours, of losing a job but coming back the next week or so. It tempers that volatility. And then also most importantly for, for moving ahead, wealth is what provides what I call moving ahead money. It's not out of the hourly wage or out of the monthly paycheck that people are able to put a down payment on a home, to use a startup capital for a business, to provide health care for an aging parent or grandparent, or help the niece or nephew uh, pay tuition for a community college. That's what wealth is used for. That's why the reservoir of wealth that a family has is really critical. So the data about African-American families having about a dime in wealth for every dollar of wealth that the average white family has, it tells us, I think, a significant and something very robust statement about life chances in the United States, about the ability to survive crises and emergencies, about the ability to get ahead. And that's why I think you know, I would make the case, um, not too strenuously, but I would make the case that if, if we're forced to choose one or two or three metrics that tells us about group inequality and that tells us about uh, livelihoods and that tells us about people's and families' ability to get ahead, one of those is clearly net wealth that a family has. It's that financial resource. It's that storehouse. All right, so talked a little bit about that dime on the dollar. But people often ask... And I think it's a really important question to ask because it gets at some of our ideas about class. People often ask, what happens to wealth once incomes are similar? The previous slide showed median to median wealth. But we also know in the United States that the average or median wage of African Americans is about 60% 60 of what it is for whites. So what if we start to equalize those? What is... Merit. What does achievement by class mean here? And I would like to draw your attention quickly to, to, three, to three bands here. The first band, the band on the top, is a looking at the 25th percentile of income and below. What is the wealth of those families? Uh, what's the net wealth of those families for whites? 13,000. I won't read all the data. For African-Americans, it's $210. 
So that ratio that was a dime on the dollar improves all the way to 15 cents on a dollar. And what I think what this data tells us, among other things, is that uh, families at or near or just above the poverty line in the United States don't have very much wealth at all. But I would also draw people's attention to white families at the median there, uh, 13,000. Um, is, uh, can allow those families to survive for, for several months. Uh, second row across, looking at a broad middle, if you will, between the 40th and the 60th income percentile, families earning between 40 and $60,000 in U.S. dollars. For whites, the wealth, median wealth is 97000 For African Americans, it's 21000 Immediately see the glass is starting to fill up. Uh, wealth is being accumulated Income and jobs and class are very important in terms of moving ahead. But the glass is also 70, 80% still empty because the ratio now is 22 cents on a dollar for families in a similar income band. And then finally, to draw your attention to the, the last route, looking at families that have income of of uh, $95,000 or more in the United States, that is those of the 75th percentile and above, the, the top quarter of the income distribution in the United States. Among whites, it's nearly $400,000 in, in, in net wealth. That buys a lot. That's a lot of security. That's a lot of moving ahead money. That's a lot of legacy. That's a lot of inheritance. For African Americans, it now jumps up to $172,000. Again, uh, see what's happening to the glass being filled up, and then also look at how that glass is still not quite half half full. Uh, 43 cents on the dollar for families in the same upper uh, upper quartile of of the income band. And on the the last right column, uh, uh, analogous data here for Hispanic or Latino families. It's Latino to, to white ratio. And you can see that the glass starts to fill up, um, in this database, it's a little bit behind the African-American data. Uh, parenthetically, uh, this data is taken from the Panel Study of Income Dynamics, the 2014 uh, sample, which is why the data is a little different than the previous slide, if anybody um, has actually picked that up. So a question often becomes then, in the United States in particular, um, on the heels of some pretty successful and hard-fought civil rights movement and social movement pieces of legislation coming in the middle 1960s of fair access to lending, fair access to housing, fair access to, to public, public establishments, fair ac and equitable access to higher education. Shouldn't it be the case that in a so-called post-racial society like that, and we can interrogate that with data, uh, with those post-racial pieces of legislation, what would happen to the racial wealth gap? And uh, one hypothesis should be that at worst, the racial wealth gap, whatever it was, should stay the same because the major barriers, the major challenges to uh, a racial justice in the United States, the legislation should have lowered those barriers tremendously. At best, the gap should close. The data tell us, unfortunately, a different story. Uh, the data here uh, is marked the two end periods of 1984, and I like to say it's not a trick year. It's simply the year 
uh, that the, the panel study of income dynamics first collected data about family wealth. And we took it up to 2013. And you can see a, a, a few blips, but essentially with inflation-adjusted dollars, that is, the dollar in 1984 buys the same thing that that dollar does in 2013, uh, that gap rises from $84,000 nearly three, fourfold to $245,000. So when, when my understanding with data like this around racial inequality in the United States is that uh, the foundation of racial inequality is the history of the United States, the history of slavery, Jim Crow, um, extreme pieces of racially-based legislation, of which I would love to have some questions about as we go along, like Social Security, like the Federal Housing Act, uh, like the Homestead Acts, like land-grant colleges. Those are interesting and curious parts of the United States history that virtually excluded families of color from the benefits of property and higher education. But something is, is happening not just with the historical foundation, because between 1984, following the same set of families up to 2013, we see that that gap continues to grow. And it's not just growing incrementally, but it's growing pretty dramatically. So the focus is not just on the history in what I like to talk about, but also our contemporary set of institutions. What's happening in the labor market? What's happening with state-level and federal-level policy in the United States? What's happening with institutional discrimination? What's happening in the financial sector? And anybody um, who is familiar or has ever started to run any kind of statistical analyses and correlation, when you see something that's risen from $84,000 to $245,000, there are going to be a multitude of sources and causes. Just about anything is going to, be, uh, uh, is going to add to driving up that racial wealth gap to $245,000. However, I think it's critical to begin to look at what are the most important or largest drivers of the widening racial wealth gap in the United States. And in the analysis that uh, the Institute on Assets and Social Policy uh, did, uh, that this part of my team was able to do, we looked at, at what were the largest drivers of that widening gap. And let me just run off one or two of them to give a quick taste. By far, the largest driver of that gap in the United States with this set of same families that were followed over the nearly three decades here is home ownership. The, way, the ways in which home ownership rates are different, yes, but also, critically, the ways in which home equity the value of a home increases much more, and the ceiling of that uh, accumulation is much greater in communities that tend to be homogeneous white and communities that tend to be homogeneous in terms of upper or upper middle class status. And the bottom, the foundation of that in the United States is persistent residential segregation, where communities are divided uh, both by race, ethnicity, and by socioeconomic status. And the, the market, my air quotes here, the, mar the real estate market reflects that. That's how value is created in that particular set of institutional dynamics. Um, the second, just quickly, the second and third largest drivers are, uh, one, one is the return, not the difference in education between white and black here, 
but the returns to wealth from educational achievement. And it's the case, the data are pretty clear. I would love somebody to, to propose a question about why this is the case. Uh, the data are very clear that African Americans with college degrees do not accumulate wealth at anywhere near the rate that white college graduates did and do. The returns to wealth are very different from higher education. Um, and then a third quick source is about inheritance. Uh, back to the foundation. Uh, the legacy of racial inequality, particularly with African Americans in the United States and now with uh, uh, more recent immigrant groups and with, with Mexican Americans in, in particular, uh, where the borders are, um, are, are very amorphous to say the least, if you know anything about United States history. So, um, to me, um, it's scary to talk just about facts. Because facts, to me, without a context, without understanding what the sources are, allow people to fill in the blank. And what filling in the blank usually means is that we go to our popular understandings or our popular prejudices or whatever the last media message was that we heard. In fact, I tend to have a mantra, let no fact go unexplained. Um, I've just given you a set of facts. I want to spend a little bit of time um, explaining them by interrogating some, some narrative here. And I'm going to give you what I hope are four somewhat startling pieces of information that get to the, the interrogation of the narrative. First, whites with no high school degrees have more wealth than African Americans that have some college. Now, I'm not sure what the equivalent is in most other countries, um, but it's essentially whites that haven't managed for whatever reason to complete a high school, have more wealth than African Americans uh, who have had some college. And the college is not necessarily college completion here. All right, so maybe education by itself is not the sole remedy. Now, I want to be careful with that statement because, in fact, uh, for every racial and ethnic group we look at in the United States, the more educational achievement does, in fact, convert to higher wealth for those families. It converts to, in fact, much higher lifetime earnings. So I'm not trying to debunk the value of education here. What this data tell me and others is that education by itself is not going to close the racial wealth gap in the United States. Second... Um, single whites raising children use whatever decoding you need there or recoding have more wealth than, than two-parent African-American families raising children. We often hear in the United States, for example, that one of the reasons African-Americans uh, do economically so much worse than whites is about family formation. And yes, it is clearly the case that when you, one has potentially two wage earners in a family, the financial resources are going to be better. Um, but if I can be allowed a, a, a wry, maybe a wry, not so wry sense of humor, why stop at two? Why not three sources of income? Uh, I'm not sure where that argument really takes us. 
um, other than the understanding and recognition of, uh, of opportunities and, and wage earners. Single whites raising children have more wealth than African-American two-parent, two-parent families raising, raising kids. Working Whites working part-time, and I can't, uh, the data don't parse this out other than, other than uh, a binary of part-time and full-time status at this point. Whites working part-time have about the same, actually it's a little more, about the same wealth as blacks working full-time. So it's not, the racial wealth gap is not solely about um, how hard people work or not. Um, it may have something to do with the kinds of jobs. It may have something to do with the kind of pay. Uh, but it's, it's not about uh, so-called laziness or, or, or lack of drive or determination. Um, whites spend um, 1.3 times as mu- at each income level. Whites spend 1.3 times as much on consumption as blacks at the same income level. And this gets at the so-called... Uh, uh, a conspicuous consumption hypothesis that some use to explain uh, racial and ethnic differences in wealth accumulation. Right. At the same income band, same income level, whites spend and consume more. <coughs> there are some interesting and profound differences in the type of consumption. Uh, whites spend more on restaurants, entertainment, clothing. African Americans spend more on utilities, gas, light. Uh, apartment rentals. And that gets at uh, a mem or frame we use in the United States. The data is also pretty compellingly clear uh, that uh, in, uh, families living in poverty pay more for utilities. They pay, they pay more for rent uh, distributionally. They pay more for utilities uh, in terms of needing deposits, in terms of needing first and last month deposits, in, in terms of those rates actually being higher. Um, it also tends to be the case in the United States and many other places across the world um, that where hyper, uh, hyper ghettos or hyper segregation is, uh, the supply of food, the markets are not very good. Um, they tend to have smaller convenience markets where the, f- where the food is, the quality is not as good and the prices are, are actually higher. So the case that I think is critical to make, um, and this... You know, if I can dare say it comes from several decades um, um, at this. Uh, inequality is preserved by policy and often created by policy. It's not the only source, but I would contend it is a major source of racial inequality in the United States. And as we soon start to turn our attention to what remedies look like, um, one remedy will need to fall under the framework of let's stop the harm. Let's stop the harm from being done and, and start, to, start to, bend, to bend that curve. In the United States, uh, tax policy, federal tax policy, actively redistributes wealth to the top. And it does this through a number of mechanisms. It does this primarily through uh, how, peop- how the federal government subsidizes home ownership where essentially we invest a little over $200 billion a year in home ownership, subsidizing uh, people to buy homes and to pay the mortgage over a period of 25 or 30 years. And we invest as a society about four times as much money helping families subsidizing that home ownership compared to uh, rent subsidies for families who have trouble uh, finding and, and affording shelter in the United States. 
the tax code. And unfortunately, uh, if people have been following some of the news in the United States lately, um, we have had a, ref a reform, Shapiro air quote, double air quote, a reform to the tax code that has made it worse, uh, that palpably now redistributes more money to the top, um, not through the mortgage interest deduction as much, but through the way corporate corporate tax rate was, was lowered and through a number of other mechanisms, which uh, maybe we can dive into uh, in, in, in the question conversation time. Um, the tax code and social policy in general provides a pretty profound disincentive to savings for families that fall below the poverty line or that uh, utilize social assistance or social welfare programs. And um, I hope maybe this will startle people a little bit, but let me give an example. Um, a, a mother who is eligible and receives food stamp assistance in the United States, her benefits for having food stamps are jeopardized if she puts money into a savings account for her child's higher education. That's held against her. There's a, there's a small number of dollars she can provide in that account. Otherwise, the, the social welfare system will basically say, you should use that money first, and we'll figure out about feeding you later. All right. An extreme set of, it, of disincentives to savings for low-income and moderate-income families in the United States. In turn, and very in a very contrasting manner, savings at the middle and upper middle and especially at the upper income levels are highly encouraged. In fact, they're tax subsidies and tax benefits. If part of my paycheck is put into a savings account, I'm not taxed. That tax is deferred. A mother on social assistance does the same thing. She potentially puts the, her benefits in jeopardy for doing that. The mortgage interest deduction I've talked a little bit about. Um, I, I don't want to go on forever, um, but uh, on the topic of the estate tax in the United States, um, if you don't think my blood's boiling already, um, it, it really, the, 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 it goes boiling over all, all edges of the pot when I start to even think about the estate tax in the United States. Um, this too was just, quote, reformed. And it was reformed in a way to provide even more protection for extremely wealthy families. Two out of every 10,000 deaths in the United States. Let me repeat and underline. Two out of every 10,000 deaths in the United States are families that are eligible to pay the estate tax, even before it was reformed. So that's how tiny of a percent of the population we're talking about. Uh, the law was recently changed so that um, a, if a single individual dies, the first 10 million U.S. dollars are exempt. Uh, and if, the, if it's a husband and wife or a couple happens to expire in the same calendar year, it's twice that amount. Right. So the first 10 million for an individual is exempt. Um, and then dollar one over 10 million, not the first dollar, but dollar one over 10 million is taxed at 
So the actual uh, effective tax rate is, is extremely low, even for those families that pay it in the United States. And lastly here, um, because uh, wealthy families in the United States need protection, it is one of the very few policy mechanisms where there's a cost of living adjustment built into it. Um, every year, uh, that $10 million is going to goes up according to what the inflation rate is in the United States. Uh, as I recall, and maybe other uh, citizens or people familiar with the United States can correct me here, there are only one or two other uh, social policy mechanisms that have that kind of cost of living adjustment. Social Security is one of them. And in fact, Social Security goes up or down. It never goes down. It goes up every year by 1% or 2%. Um, food stamps don't. Rent assistance doesn't. Clothing allowances don't. Right? There are no COLAs, no cost of living adjustments for those. Um, but, but for the wealthy, we, we, we tend to... It's built into the law. Um, so how can we think about moving forward from this? Um, a couple of policy concepts, if you will, just, just quickly here. One is that, um, you know, I, I guess the metaphor I use is what the Dutch do or used to do with drug policy. You stop the harm first. We find the largest policy drivers of increasing inequality and work on those. And once we get those under control or begin to bend those, we start also to talk about how we grow wealth in a much more equitable way uh, across the racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic spectrum in the United States. So that's one framework that I think is important. The second that I think is important is that um, uh, if we think of social policy uh, also as a spectrum, on one end, we have policies that, if they work, provide economic mobility and help families get ahead and help individuals get ahead. It could be workforce development. It could be a, a lot of things one could talk about. Um, and those targets, those policy targets, are clearly about individuals and families and tend to be, on the individual level, a little smaller in, in scope, if not in terms of aggregate budget. As we go across the spectrum, we have policies that really target equity, that are really about much larger transformations towards equity in, in, in uh, whether it's racial or ethnic or, or economic or both in the United States. And part of what um, I've been, I try to do in my work is to bring together um, a strain of what inequality is about in terms of economic inequality and how that is intersecting with racial and, and ethnic inequality in the United States. In the United States, it tends to be two separate dialogues where I think it's the same story that has two different ways of telling it. And it clearly averts uh, certain kinds of coalitions and initiatives, whether one exclusively talks about inequity or inequality in class terms or in racial terms. Um, my way of looking at it is that we have to look at, we have to look at them in tandem. Uh, and for me, that's what the part of the phrase toxic inequality is, is, is really about. Um, so um, clearly we have, to, we have to talk about the tax code, which I don't want to talk about much more, much more this evening, but it is a major driver in the United States and it is a major cause of harm, uh, continual daily harm 
uh, that could be reversed, um, although the opportunity at the moment doesn't look very optimistic. Um, in general, I like to think, and, and it's why I really uh, um, uh, look forward to some of the discussion and conversation uh, about what is going on in, in the UK in terms of uh, in terms of disparities. I like to think of a racial that a racial justice filter is really critical. It's really critical to ask the the question of every policy proposal, every policy that is on the ground. What does it do in terms of uh, socioeconomic inequality. What does it do or what would it do if it were successful in terms of, of the racial wealth gap? Would it start to close it? Would it have no effect? Would it work in the wrong direction and actually widen it even further? In the United States, um, there is a, a movement of sorts to embed uh, both equity, sometimes it's called an equity filter, sometimes it is uh, specifically called the racial justice filter. Um, mostly at the metropolitan level. So the city of Seattle has one. They call it an equity filter um, that uh, uh, really uh, holds uh, municipal departments accountable for plans and implementing plans about equity in Seattle. How's procurement done? Uh, how are, who determines which roads are fixed? Uh, who determines what does equity look like in the school system? And just ask a series of questions like that. In the Boston metropolitan area, where, where um, I and my wife are citizens of and have been for, for many decades now, uh, the city is about to implement uh, a racial justice filter that we've been working on for, for several years. And it is going to be somewhat similar but different than the one in Seattle, where city departments are specifically going to be asked to make a plan about racial justice. What is racial justice? What does racial justice and equity look like in the department that you are employed in or that you run? And so obviously it's going to be a different plan for parks and recreation than it is for garbage collection, than procurement, than for tax collection. But every department is going to be asked to come up with a plan. And then hopefully their feet will be held to the fire and they will remain accountable to a metrics that will be established how are you meeting that plan over, over the years? Um, I think another way forward is really to, uh, and it's a plea I've been trying to make in the social sciences now for, for many years, uh, the way we think about economic mobility and the way we think about economic security tends still to focus on income. And, and my, my plea, and that hopefully you'll be convinced to take this seriously with some of the data that that I presented here, um, we need to look at wealth in conjunction with income. Because wealth, I think, tells us a, a different kind of story. It tells us a story about economic security. It tells us a story about mobility. It tells us a different kind of story still than just income does. And I think that's real critical to look at. I think now, um, in many parts of the Western world, uh, we're beginning to have some pretty reliable and decent data sets that contain information about family wealth and family debts, and we're starting to do this. And it's starting to be done in a lot, in a lot of places. Uh, the social sciences in particular, uh, my home social science sociology, um, is beginning to do it, but not nearly to the extent uh, that, that I would, uh, that I keep trying to push the, the academic profession to do. And then lastly, 
Um, and this, I think, is probably more unique to the United States. Uh, I'm a little bit familiar with the NEST scheme in the UK and initiatives that have been taken here. But in the United States, um, we need to reconnect the pipeline or the conveyor belt between work and the accumulation of wealth. And by that, I mean um, what happens at work, uh, uh, what we call sometimes call employment capital, is not only the paycheck of the hourly wage that comes to us, weekly, monthly, whatever comes to us, but it's also um, the retirement savings that is based at the workplace. It's how that is matched and or seeded by one's employer. It's about, you know, and I hate to, it it pains me to have to remind an audience about this, uh, but the United States is one of the very, very few countries that does not have paid maternity leave. One has a child at their own economic risk in terms of pay in the United States. Uh, and that, that will vary, of course. Not of course. That will vary by the employer. Some employers do. Um, many don't. But it's not, it's not required or mandated to do so. Uh, we also don't have paid sick leave. There's no mandate for that in the United States. Uh, it, it's at the whim or uh, the result of, of, of labor negotiations uh, if there's a union around at, at particular wage sites in the United States. So retirement savings, paid sick leave, health insurance, dental insurance. All those are things that when they are not part of a remuneration at work, uh, the wealth, whatever wealth that family has is totally unprotected. The risk of ill health, the risk of living too long, the risk of having to help uh, parents and grandparents, Um, is all a private risk that has very little, if any, wealth protection in the United States. That's why that that, um, wealth serves as that protection uh, in a first instance. Um, And then I would uh, like to end my part of the presentation and the evening um, with thinking uh, a little bit, throwing maybe a thought or two out about uh, narratives, I want to go back to narrative, about narratives of social policy and racial injustice and economic inequality. There are um, a, lot of, a lot of narratives, a lot of values at play here. Uh, one can go from a faith-based approach and talk about how it's unfair, morally, ethically unfair to have this level of inequality. One can talk about it from the point of view of a society, about what a society loses by the the talent that's missing. Um, I will remind people a lesson from the civil rights movement in the United States that culminated in successful pieces of federal legislation in the early to mid-1960s was founded on uh, a combination of a narrative that appealed uh, both to faith-based value-based, and to economic-based. And that was, uh, uh, that was the appeal, I think, largely the appeal of Martin Luther King. So my ending and my plea, if you will, and, and I've started to do this um, somewhat recently, by citing or calling to people's attention a, a pretty recent study by Roz Chetty and his team um, uh, at the Economic Mobility Project at a number of universities around the country, um, and the study I'm referring to is a study where he, looked, he and his team looked at uh, patent records in the United States 
and they would look at patent records as a proxy for trying to maybe tells us something about innovation in society. Where does innovation come from? Where does that kind of entrepreneurial and social innovation come from? Um, it was then able to combine those records uh, with the patent holders and other records in the United States and came to the following quick conclusion that in grammar school, first, second, third grade, math scores, the highest math score testing African-American children, the precursors of patents, the precursors of innovation, if you will, had a lower rate of patent holding than middling and low-scoring whites at the same age. And one of the, the frames he talked, the team talks about this in terms of these are the lost Einsteins in a society that I think pull together um, both the individual. What are those individuals losing? What's happening in the set of institutions where we lose and they lose the brightness that doesn't allow them to fulfill that maybe human potential? And it combines that individual notion with what society has lost. So my last plea is um, we want to bend the arc to justice, my Martin Luther King stolen phrase, um, so that we no longer lose as many Einsteins as we, as we have in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, thank you very much, and, and I'm eagerly looking forward to the rest of the conversation. Thank you very much, and I'm uh, delighted now to uh, hand over to Zamila for some uh, discussion of these points. Thank you, everybody. Good evening. Um, so my brief in about 10 or 12 minutes is to give you some reflections on Professor Spiro's leading research, to offer some considerations and challenges, and then to uh, put it into the UK context as a policy professional and having done some research in this area. So initially, the reflections. Um, I actually really like the extensive quant in your material as well as the qual because you have covered a time series that has looked at the recession, key elements of black swans that we always anticipate but never expect when they show up, and the shifts in our social and political societies in terms of the voices that we hear. And so Black Lives Matters, the Occupy movement, these are things that have happened in our very recent history which are changing the way we think about inequality, but also has brought it to the forefront of our lexicon in ways that we probably haven't experienced for some time. Uh, the qualitative analysis has also just allowed the real voices, the real stories of people, of families, intergenerational realities that people face across your country that helps us remember that you know, inequality is not a mono thing and it doesn't affect any one group in the same way. It has different facets that have to be respected and appreciated. Uh, the strong thread in your structure of geography, employment, tax systems, and a lack of assets rather than individual choices and behaviors being the key determinants of outcomes, I think is a very powerful one and something that we probably want to think about for some time. And something that was resonant that I think we'd all probably appreciate is that the book recognizes that ambitions and goals to achieve the value to work and aspire are actually the same for all groups, rich and poor. There is no differential between these realities. The outcomes, however, can be very, very different. In respect to the stark qual findings that you have, um, 
it's not just the shocks can affect different groups in very temporary ways across uh, unequal and ethnic divides. It's also that they're very resilient and the shocks that people endure can affect families intergenerationally. And so how that manifests into driving inequality even further is something we have to respect and think about when we look at how shifts are going to affect families over long term. You rightly uh, pay a lot of attention to the disparities in policies, geographic segregation, other injustices that are happening over time, and the widening economic inequalities uh, that are affecting different ethnic groups. The national discourse about inequalities and disparities, we have to recognize that they are not universal. Their impacts are different. And how we're going to correct them, therefore, is something that we have to think about in very different and nuanced ways. Um, your examples of uh, discrimination affecting the African-American and Hispanic groups with respect to how they were borrowing, mortgage lending, subprime, the reactions of how, what, how people are charged different fees, whether they get bank loans to allow them to accumulate wealth, are all very, very stark. And I think research of the UK in this area is probably going to be necessary. Um, the reminder of the Gini coefficient stats of 2015 that the income inequality, the wealth inequality, is actually rising, and it's the greatest in the United States, this richest of all nations. And has the bottom 90%, which is always strange to me to say, the bottom 90%, the vast majority of people is still the bottom, uh, has been declining since the 80s. The ethnic group concentration, your point in terms of disparities and neighborhood opportunities being different and how that manifests for public schools, the crime rate, home value appreciations, quality of employment and divergent living, I think we will take that in context of how that is different in the UK. But as a US example, it's very important to know how that context affects people's outcomes. So your term, toxic inequalities the meaning that communities in decline will continue to be in decline unless stark interventions actually kick in. But one has to wonder if that overlooks the realities that sometimes geographic proximity and youth and innovation will permit for different ethnic groups. The examples you give of different families in the U.S. with large incomes as well as wealth assets did allow us to consider how this is going to be different between the white population and the black population who are residing in all black communities despite actually having the wealth to maybe want to move out, but they're very proud of where they live and they don't want to move. And so they're making their homes and their locations better places and that it doesn't take government intervention to do that. That's just communities fixing where they live. I think the point also on how high poverty neighborhoods has tripled in the U.S. is alarming since the 70s and the fact that the number of poor living in them has doubled so that just gives you a grade and shift of how inequality is getting worse in certain places and how geographic, geography matters. The worrying trends in terms of private equity companies acquiring homes at depressed prices and then sprucing them up and then renting them out, which therefore taking that sort of value and distribution of home assets out of the equation is something that, again, all governments are going to have to think about as house prices increase. So challenges for us to think about can any of this be reversed? So a lot of the book talks about how so much of this is getting worse. The question has to come. Can these things be reversed? Are we looking at potential shifts, or is this a macro-level problem, or is this a decline that is just going one way? Uh, as I said, the 90% and the, you know, the genuine bottom of these numbers is the aim to think about how we're going to affect a segment of that 90% or are we going to continue to develop policies that somehow just benefit the educated middle class that know how to use those numbers more effectively? 
Again, I don't know the answer, but I think we better think about it. Is the solution increasing distribution across services or across assets and just making sure that people have more access, or is it about increasing volumes to access? Again, I don't know, but I'm not convinced that just building more houses is going to solve this problem of wealth accumulation. Do we challenge the notion that equality of opportunity as a policy is maybe not the right one to have had? That because it's not leading to equality of outcomes, maybe there's something about the way we come at this as a policy context in the conversation is that it's not affecting one generation and it's taking several generations maybe to fix. So is it that the outcome is potentially the goal as opposed to the opportunity itself? Because that takes the point that if this is not universal to begin with, then the outcome should also maybe not be universal. So, relevance to the UK. This is our shiny new website. We are the first in the world in the UK to build such a website. The context to this is uh, the Prime Minister, our boss, Belgian Luau's boss, asked us to design a website that contained all government data and to break it down by ethnicity. Uh, there is no blueprint for this, so we have designed this from scratch. So we launched it in October. We have received significant press. We have received great help from colleagues at LSE, for which we're grateful. So I'm just going to show you some of the data that we have to help contrast it with what Shapiro, Dr. Professor Shapiro is telling us. So firstly, the data is broken down into what we call six domains. Uh, the source is open access so anyone can get to it so we wanted to make sure that if anyone can access this website it should be accessible to anyone therefore the language, the terminology and just the visuals hopefully you will find very appealing and very accessible so I need to show you uh, what we call a typical data page so this is all the data we have in our government on education, we're still building this website so it contains hundreds of pages of data but it's still only about 20% of what we have so I'm going to give you 7 to 11. I'm going to show you some reading, writing, math stats. This is a typical measure page on our website, uh, just to give you the structure. We tell you what you're about to see on this page. We tell you the provenance in terms of when it was published, which department publishes it, what time series it has, and what it covers. When we tested this data, we tested it with members of the public, academics, NGOs, local government, central government, think tanks, across the board, across the UK, devolved governments as well. And these are the structures and the way that we've been told is best to present a website. <coughs> so first we give you the main facts and figures. I'm not going to dwell on this, but the truth is that what we show you is the key stats you're about to see on this page. There's no judgment in this. These are literally the key stats to show you. But the charts are more important, so I'll scroll down. The technical information is hidden behind these three buttons, things you need to know, what the data measures, and there's categorization issues in this. So similar to the United States, I'm sure we collect ethnicity data in many different ways in the United Kingdom. We have something called the census, of course, which gives us the latest categories. But as we update the census every 10 years, we have multiple different types of categories of ethnicity to cover. And there is no current uniform system in the United Kingdom government of how we collect ethnicity data. So what we're about to show you, we collect in many different ways. So this is the first chart on our page to give you reading, writing, maths by ethnicity. And from it, you'll see the scale of the disparities between different ethnic groups. So for some of you, this may not be news, but for some of you, it might. The highest achieving ethnic group in the UK is the Chinese. The second highest is the Indian. The third highest is the mixed age. And then the white is here at 53%. So that gives you this idea of how disparities 
cross-education exist in the United Kingdom by our ethnic groups. But the data is more sophisticated than that, and we can start to break it down further. Firstly, just to give you the visual, uh, we've been told that when you give data to people, you have to give it in charts and tables, because not everyone is data numerate. So our entire website splits by ta tables and charts. You can download everything on our website, so it's free to access. And on the right, you can download it in CSV file and table and chart. Then we give you the summary, which highlights what it is I've just said, which is which are the highest achieving groups in this grade, which are the lowest, and the range of the disparities that are found. Then we give you, because we know ethnic disparities are not only explained by ethnicity, there are various factors that you have to consider, including socioeconomics, including gender, including geography, and where possible we give you those data breakdowns. So this is what we call free school meals, which in the UK is the only and crudest version of socioeconomic data on education we have. Nevertheless, it shows you some of the disparities don't hold the same way that we might assume, in that ethnic groups are still highest achieving in these categories, regardless of whether or not they are a receipt of free school meal support from the government. Again, there's the table, there's the data to download. Now, this is the best and sexiest part of my website. We've done something that no one ever has, even though this data was always published. We have broken it down by geography. So you can quite literally ask the, the website which is the best geography to be Asian to get this outcome, and it will tell you. You can ask it, what is it for black, and it will tell you. You can ask it Chinese, and it will tell you. This data was always available, but my amazing team put it together and gave it to us by geography, because as the professor has outlined, where you live, geographic segregation and neighborhoods matters a great deal. Anywhere in the world, this is always going to matter. In the UK, we are no different. And so we have broken it down by all local authorities in the United Kingdom. And I think we have gender. Here it is. Now, this may not be news, but girls do better than boys. What may be news is by the scale. Ethnic minority girls do better than boys and how differently they do to the white population. Again, this website is about all ethnic groups. We don't, we don't differentiate only for ethnic minorities because the white majority is also an ethnic group. And it's important to recognize that disparities are faced by all ethnic groups, including the white. I'm going to show you employment briefly. Here we go. Again, this is partly just to show you the sophistication of the website, but also to highlight how much data matters when we're talking about inequality. So again, the profile is the same. Providence of the data, where the key disparities are, things you need to know. Now, employability by ethnicity. The highest, of course, for the white group, 76%. And then the range and the disparity. The lowest here is 54 for the Pakistani Bangladeshi group. We've known this for about 20 years, that in our education and employment systems, we have disparities that have been persistent. What is causing them, we do not know completely. We have extensive data that tries to break it down and says, this percent is about ethnicity, this percent is about where they live, this percent is about skills. What is true, however, is this disparity is holding, regardless of interventions and what it is we're doing about it and education outcomes. So it has to challenge the way we think about things when a chart that tells you the highest achieving groups by education are several ethnic minority groups, and yet the employment disparities are in double-digit figures and they have been there for double decades. There is something that is very wrong in our system if this is a reality that holds. Scrolling down... 
We give it to you for the white group as well, because again, as I said, the website is about all ethnicities. And then something again that is quite sexy on our site. What we've tried to recognize is that some disparities are so uh, persistent, but the time series matters. You need to know how the disparity has shifted when you've seen recessions, when you've seen shocks in your labor market. We have to thank Professor Jonathan Wadsworth here at LSE, who published The State of Work in Britain, who told us how the ethnic minority groups are faring worse into and out of recessions. They do not recover as quickly, and they are one of the first to lose their jobs. And some of this data reflects that. Again, tables and by region. Again, this is why it matters. You need to know where people live to know what the disparities are. The disparities are affecting people differently by their geography. And how we're going to address some of these is, again, going to matter and going to be applied differently. I think there's just a geography page on this I wanted to show you. If I can scroll. You, and you nearly through. Are we there? Okay, there's just one more. Again, by age, I just wanted to show you because ethnic minorities and Professor Sarir again highlighted this, the demographics in ethnic minority populations. We are an aging white society, the same as the US. We have rising demographic shifts in terms of a highly youthful ethnic minority population. And so how this is going to shift our labor market is something that we're going to have to be very, very aware of when we design policies and when we look at how it is we have our recruitment practices. But the chart that I wanted to show you that I hope Professor Shabir will do justice to your wealth point is on home ownership. So, again, I'm going to scroll right to the bottom of this one because we have a chart that defies any logic that we've tried to apply to it. And here it is. So, percentage of households who own their own income by ethnicity. So, a lot of what we think of in terms of how people buy houses is dependent on how much you earn and potentially where you live. But this chart tells us that even the highest earning ethnic minorities, those who earn over a thousand pounds a week or more, still have a disparity of about 20% when it comes to home ownership compared to the white population. So your argument of how do we bridge, how we look at income versus wealth is captivated, I hope, in this chart, which says income is not the thing to be looking at because income here is not justifying how it is you're owning a home because the disparity still holds. Therefore, something else needs to be considered when we think about how it is you're going to meet these disparities because income is not solving it for you. So just some wider reflections in terms of the UK. So I've shown you some... Samila, can you, can you yes. wrap up? Sorry. Thank you. So I've shown you some wider disparities, but some things that just to think about in terms of how it is we're going to consider how this data works. In the UK, geography matters slightly differently in terms of the US because what we're finding is ethnic minorities in the UK are largely concentrated in London, Birmingham, Manchester, and that captures about 50% of the ethnic minority population. And then the others are dispersed also in inner city areas. But one thing that we're finding in our inner city areas is the proximate location to jobs, the proximate location to higher education institutions, but also the increasing value of people's houses. So if you happen to be one of the lucky ethnic minorities that does own a home, they're generally more valuable than if you live in rural areas like the majority of the white working class population in the UK. So we have subtle differences in terms of how it is geography affects people differently. 
also in terms of higher education, ethnic minorities are disproportionately going into universities in the UK. So whilst we have tuition fees the same as the US, but not on the same scale, whilst we have some support, which is declining, I'm sure, but ethnic minorities are still choosing to go into universities. So regardless of any assets they may or may not have, the blockage of fees is not stopping them going into university. So their aspirations are still very high. They still are choosing to try and achieve. Whether that is resulting in graduate outcomes is something still to be discussed. But nevertheless, it is still something that we have to appreciate. And my final point will be, I think when we look at policies, it's not necessarily the case that we should look at individual and incremental policies in terms of education, employment, housing, health. These problems have been so persistent that maybe it's time to look at this in a macro level, that systems change is something that is potentially required. What that will be, I don't know. But we hope that the website that we've produced will help people interrogate the data better. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I wanted to allow time for questions because I'm sure there are lots of questions. So I'm going to take um, three at a time, and if you could say uh, your name and where you're from um, uh, when, uh, when, you, when you make a question, and if we can keep the questions relatively brief and questions, preferably rather than comments. Okay, this gentleman here was the first to stick his hand up. Good evening. Thank you, both the speakers. Um, very interesting. I'm going to start by saying two words. Are you going to introduce yourself? Luke Hamill. The first two words, Luke Hamill, most important. Um, First two words, Panama Papers. When the richest elites in the world control government, control the flow of money, and will take it anywhere, what can we really do? Um, And obviously war, when you look at the history, especially the last hundred years, is the biggest uh, driver or shift of wealth. I don't know where to start. Thanks very much. I think there was one over there. We'll be in the second round because it was. Me. Hello, uh, my name is Steve Kosky. Um, I was just hoping that you you might talk a little bit about uh, Professor Shapiro. That is about what you think the the role of the organized labor in the U.S. will be going forward. Um, there's criticism about it that it it uh, kind of it never was inclusive of racial minorities and it got separated from the civil rights movement, uh, which Dr. King hoped wouldn't happen, so just what you think of its outlook going forward. Thanks very much. Less splendidly concise questions, and this gentleman here was, the ve- was slightly faster than this woman here, who will be in the next round. Hello, my name is Paweł Bukowski, I'm from LSE. Uh, there's a new research by Ed Wolf from, uh, from I think he's from US, which shows that there are big differences in the rate of returns to assets because the, between the wealthiest and, let's say, the mid-wealth Americans. Uh, so basically, the wealthiest Americans are earning much more from their wealth than, than the other wealth groups. And one explanation is that because the composition of their wealth is completely different, so they, they have much more financial assets than other wealth groups. So my question is whether perhaps we can explain this racial gap uh, by, by looking at the composition of wealth. Maybe some, some sort of access to financial assets which differs across these groups. And I think it's, if, 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 I, if I can recall correctly, the graph showing the difference in the net wealth, there was this interesting uh, effect of dot-com bubble for whites but not for blacks, which may suggest that it's, it's, the, the access to financial assets is partially responsible for that. 
Thank you very much. So we have uh, questions on what can we really do, the role of organised labour and the composition of wealth, whether that helps explain things. So, Tom? Is this mic working? Yeah. I'm sure glad you all just asked little questions. (laughs) So um, let me me attack them uh, relatively briefly, one at a time, to keep the conversation going. Um, Yes, I think um, in any society, and especially in the United States, only because I'm most familiar with it, as uh, the wealthy continue to capture larger portions of the civic dialogue and civic participation, um, uh, remedies become much more difficult. Uh, In the United States, I think that currently the most pronounced way that is done is through how elections are financed. Um, Essentially, um, uh, the larger your pocketbook, the more votes you can buy. Uh, by contributing to candidates, by um, engaging people to become candidates. We have this um, infamous, in my view, uh, Supreme Court decision that says that corporations are individuals and therefore that corporate donations to political campaigns are are expressions of freedom of speech. (laughs) Show me the corporation's birth certificate (laughs) and, and maybe we'll talk about that argument. Other than being facetious, um, I I think that that is one of the mechanisms that has uh, um, gone further down the road to the very wealthy and corporate capturing of political dynamics in the United States. The remedy is a, you know, we don't have to be nuclear scientists here. Uh, The remedy, one remedy, is public financing of of elections, um, which a lot of places have and seem to work very fine. Thank you. Uh, but is highly contentious in in the United States. Second question, um, organized labor. I would just, it's a great question. Um, The the organized unions have, um, represent only like four or five percent of the American workforce now. Where at the height of the organized labor movement, I would suggest uh, coming out of World War II was closer to 25 to 30 percent. Still not a majority, but it was 25 or 30% where the heart of those uh, of organized labor was in the manufacturing industries, particularly uh, automobile production, uh, steel, uh, uh, rubber, uh, etc. That is some of the basic manufacturing industries of the United States that employed um, uh, the largest sectors in the American economy. That shift has happened. Uh, and those sectors have been dwindling in terms of employment, dwindling in terms of of, uh, of union organized labor representation as well. Uh, many of those unions uh, did have, especially I would point to the auto, United Auto Workers as an example, did have some pretty inclusive uh, contributions and participations of workers of color, uh, which is not to mean there were not issues. Uh, other unions uh, tended to be to protect, to do some resource hoarding, if you will, and protect their, their organized status uh, to keep a lower floor, if you will, to build up the floor for union workers versus non-union workers, which tended to be workers of color. So that, that nuance is very important. Um, I think moving forward, as a, a pretty pronounced shift in the occupation structure is and has been occurring in the United States, not just from manufacturing but to, but to retail, but I think specifically to healthcare sectors, to service sectors, uh, to domestic sectors, that that is where um, the 
road forward for organized labor is, and we begin to see it in the uh, a union called SEIU, the, the Service, uh, Service Employees International Union, uh, which I think happens to be doing a pretty good job um, in, in trying to organize hospitality workers, uh, hotel workers in, in particular, restaurant workers. Um, one union, which is not that one, it's another one, uh, a, a recently won um, a pretty dramatic organizing campaign at Harvard University, which now needs to offer a, a, um, an annual guaranteed salary for its food workers. And if we think about universities um, where a lot of times uh, it's, quote, downtime for students, meaning the food services are not operating, if we think about what the employability of that means for food service workers and others, um, it's highly uneven kind of, uh, kind of work. So those kinds of, of gains um, were, are really, really important. Um, and and uh, lastly, um, I would like to say that um, uh, Ruth and I have a son who is very involved in, in the union organizing movement among certain kinds of workers in the United States. So it's something that uh, we hear about um, as often as we can, and, and I think there is some room for optimism in that. Um, third question, I think um, if I was hearing it correctly, the, 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 the citation to, to Ed Wolf and uh, where... Uh, where wealth is really being uh, uh, aggregated more, much more, much more at the higher end, but also about the, the composition of that wealth. Um, if I'm hearing it correctly, it also goes to the heart of the Piketty argument, um, which I think is about speculative capital and is about financial capital, um, which when we look at the composition of wealth, um, the higher up the wealth ladder one goes, the less of it is in home equity and the more of it is in investment capital, whether that's finance, whether it's stocks or bonds, whether it's businesses, um, whether it's speculative capital, um, whatever it is. So th those con the, the families that we're interested in and the communities we're interested in, that broad middle, um, that bottom 90% of the population, which is a phrase I use a lot myself, how ironic that phrase is, um, the composition of capital uh, the composition of wealth in, in that group is, is not in the financial sector. Um, and, and yes, I, I think that is, uh, you know, if the, to the extent to which the Piketty argument is accurate, um, the higher returns have gone into that sector, and, and that's where, where finances have gone. Um, it's not, however, a piece of advice or wisdom um, that I think easily translates to policy for, for middle, uh, for low and moderate income families. Um, you know, sometimes we have this debate or hot conversation about uh, is it you know, morally right, ethically right to advise uh, low and moderate income families to become homeowners because of the potential crashes and foreclosure crisis that we've seen in the United States. History may repeat itself. Um, unfortunately, from my point of view and my understanding of the data, it's not an either or. It's not as if somebody has $20,000 and they decide to put it as a down payment versus doing something else with it. They don't have the $20,000. It's not a question of choice. Uh, how families acquire that down payment for a home, which is usually 5 to 10% of the purchase price, is often, especially for first-time home buyers, is especially bought through their family. It's loans, it's outright gifts that they get from family and others. That's the only way first-time homeowners um, are largely able to finance that to begin with. 
Thanks very much. Do you want to add anything? Um, I just wanted to say on the sort of uh, organised labour point, so in the UK as well, as we see shifts in our labour market and how people are getting jobs and the sort of move away from long-term opportunities to very short-term contracts, we do need to think about how rights and benefits are going to be expressed and given. But that also leads itself to how are loans and mortgages being distributed to these people. And so there was a very good piece of research by the Resolution Foundation recently which has said we are cutting off big swathes of our labour market from ever owning a home because they literally will not be able to get access to those mortgages. So that is something that we have to think about as we put together an industrial strategy in government, but also how the labour market shifts are going to continue over time. Thanks very much. Okay, I've got time to take some more. Um, I'm just going to look up, just in case... Any up, up, okay, so there's one here, one up there, and then um, I think both of you. So um, we're pretty, pretty close. So we, we'll, take four, we'll take four. So it's one, one in the middle here first, one up there, and then two here. Um, so I'm Neelu, and my question was... Um, so obviously, like, looking at the data, etc., is useful, and it, it gives insight into society currently. But obviously there's, like, policy behind that, and policy needs to be put into effect. Why do you think, both in the UK and in the US, like, politicians have been put into power... Um, and a decent proportion of that, the, the, democra- the, the demographic who voted for that politician um, was of African-American and therefore, I suppose, inherently disenfranchised background. Why do you think that was voted in? Do you think like American and British society is more into like, disputing economic bubbles and the establishment, which I suppose many of the politicians nowadays are there to represent, I suppose, um, as opposed to like, long-term economic gain and economic stability? Thanks very much. And then we'll take the one up here. Hi, my name is Julian. I'm, I'm an American. I want to ask you about the, more the political messaging of how we uh, address this problem. Because you lay out a pretty clear distinction that, that along racial divisions. But in terms of the political messaging for addressing wealth inequality, isn't it more effective to, in, in a sense, make it a class issue rather than putting the nuance of race on the table, given that it's so easily attacked by, right, by the right in the United States, by the Republican Party, that unites then a different force that works as a counterbalance to actually addressing this problem? Okay, and then, do qu- and can you keep them very brief, please? This, and then we'll fit the t- fit two more in. So there's a lady here. And then a lady over there. Right. Um, my name is Naomi Eisenstadt. I was feeling rather smug. I really enjoyed your talk. I re- enjoyed both. But I was feeling rather smug about the suggestion about an equity filter. Because in the UK, we do have an equity filter. And I was involved in the legislation as a civil servant. More recently, in Scotland, we have added socioeconomic status to the equity figure. So from feeling smug, then when I heard um, comments from Zamilla, I was thinking, evidence-based policy, has it had any impact? We've had it since 2010. Has it worked? Small question there, then. Um, and, and finally, one over here. This, this, this lady here. No, it's, it's just coming your way. Um, so my question is for Professor Shapiro about what you mentioned with food stamps discouraging savings. Um, has there been a history in welfare development in the United States discouraging savings across all programs, or is food stamps a shift in that mindset? Great. Thanks very much. I think I will start with one, two, and four. <laughs> yes, and then we'll hand over to um, I, I will apologize. I'm not sure I've, I've 
really got the sense of the first question. So pull me back if I'm going down the, down the wrong road here. Um, but one of our famous uh, politicians in Massachusetts who used to be Speaker of the House had a famous saying where he said, all politics is local. And what, one of the things he meant by that is that um, whatever the demographics of the constituency one is representing, with elections for Congress every two years in the United States, there's a continual um, interest in delivering the goods, uh, in supplying stuff uh, through pieces of legislation that either earmark their districts or the constituents in the districts uh, really, um, really benefit most from. And in political science, um, I, I think there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of veracity to the conversation of when, um, when politics are constituted around uh, those kinds of, of interests and elections are continual and now through how they're financed, it's harder to think about larger transformative issues because that's not what people tend to be elected on. So lastly, and actually what is most important in my point of view on this, is that if in the absence of a social movement, whether it's a, a women's movement, whether it's a civil rights movement, whether it's an organized labor movement, in the absence of a social movement, politicians are not going to be driven to transformative policy. Some will, they'll be champions, and we all can name who they are because there's so few. But generally, politicians need to be pushed. Uh, and it's a social movement, uh, various kinds of social movements that, that, that do that. Um, political messaging. So um, we could have, a, 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 I think, a great conversation about that. Um, uh, and in my sense, and it's part of, uh, it's a large part of why I titled the book Toxic Inequality. Um, and it's precisely around the, the idea that we have to talk and deal and political message um, economic injustice and racial inequality together and in tandem. And an example I would give um, is of the Occupy movement uh, uh, that, that really, um, for the first time in the United States in our contemporary era, uh, put the eyes of the American public on that top 1% and defined them in a particular way. And a movement of, of sorts developed around that, but it was a movement... <coughs> that did not talk about racial inequality. It tended to just focus on the extreme wealthy and, and class. And so it did not bring into its, its movement um, a, a larger coalition that I think it had the potential to. Um, and, and so you know, I think there are a lot of lessons that are learned from that that, that people are trying to incorporate. Um, but again, my, you know, my sense is that that if we don't deal with both at the same time, because the sources are very similar, um, then, there's, then there's a fracturing about the solutions and the potential of getting down that road are, are, are actually a lot less. Um, the, the food stamp question, maybe, I'm not sure, I could have been misunderstood. Um, uh, in, uh, at, in the United States, at the state level, there are 50 states. The states have the ability to determine eligibility levels for programs where resources come from the federal government. And food stamps, or SNAP what we call it, but food stamps uh, is one of those. Half of the states in the United States, uh, through reform movements, through some, a little social movement that I'm proud to say I've been a part of, have removed 
the asset test. So about half of the states, you no longer are, uh, have, have asset testing, or the ceiling on the assets have, have, been, have, have, have been lifted tremendously. The other half still have them. So that in a state like Maine, for example, uh, just to the north of us in Massachusetts, in the state of Maine and 24 others, um, if you have uh, assets in the form of a car, a savings account, or savings for a child's higher education in excess of, and I don't know what the figure is, so uh, just for example, $1,500, you jeopardize your, your eligibility for food stamps in the state of Maine. So that's the disincentive to save. And I will also uh, suggest in the state of Maine, which happens to have a governor that is not of my liking at all, um, uh, that, it, that it's a governor that has um, actually wanted to lower the asset limit, take it from the hypothetical 1,500 to 1,000. And it really put the screws on even more because he doesn't like food stamps uh, for, for a lot of different reasons. And does it operate across other programs, I think was the uh, question. Yes, it does. Uh, food stamps was the, the example I used, an example that came back to me. Yes, it does operate with, with other programs as well. Food stamps is an example. Uh, it operates on some, on some rent subsidies uh, and, and, and other things as well. But food stamps is one of the crucial ones because it's about food security um, and, and how that food security is jeopardized or not. Thanks so much. Do you want to come in then? Um, just on two points, if it's okay. Uh, so on political messaging, um, I can see how it might be crisper to look at only class. But if we think about the shifts in uh, our class structures and the disappearing middle class, it's not as easy as it might sound. But also, just from the data that we've seen, the different outcomes across ethnic groups requires us to actually look at this very seriously. So I take the point that we could probably potentially look at it both, uh, but both are diverging in very different ways. So that would make it far more complicated. So I don't know that tackling an issue requires us to maybe ignore it and look at something that's easier. I think tackling it head-on is probably the right answer going forward. Uh, in terms, But I appreciate that would be messy. Uh, in terms of evidence-based policy, of course, that is what we strive for in government. Uh, and the Equality Act has indeed been on the books since 2010. But I suppose what has now been the challenges is legislation alone will not fix inequalities. They are something that are behavioral in our societies. They are something that are political and social. Legislation is probably your first step. But recognizing how you're going to address this is slightly different. So I definitely take a lot from Professor Spira's response in terms of at the local level, developing plans to say what are we going to do to achieve better racial outcomes. That is something that is potentially possible at the government level as well. We're going to have to think about it. But it's not going to be easy. One bit of legislation doesn't get you over this hurdle of persistent disparities. So the wider context will have to be what is the duty to every citizen in the country? Is it to say we will eradicate disparities by ethnic group, by class? That is the wider conversation at a macro level that we have to have. So I would come back and, and add one other thing to the political messaging maybe get into a, a little bit of, of some philosophical and policy weeds here uh, and that is um, I'm very fond uh, and like to advocate a concept that uh, we call targeted universalism in the United States and, and what that means is uh, a policy in the United States the, uh, 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 the, the foundation is every, everything has to be universal um, if the poorest family is eligible for something, Bill Gates has to be eligible for it, too. Um, and it doesn't take into consideration that um, the universal, thinking that way, 
means that we're thinking of universal as a means and not an end. If we think of universal as an end, the end being higher education, or the goal or the end being uh, 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 economic security or retirement security, if we think of those as, of the goals as the universals, we need to then recognize that people are, and groups are situated differently. So to get differently situated groups to the same universal goal, different means are going to be necessary. So that if an eligibility requirement, for example, were family wealth, that's a way of thinking about targeted universalism because we know the data that actually targets as the means more families of color because that's where the wealth distribution, the lack of wealth is, uh, to get to the same means of, of economic security. And there are a couple of proposals uh, afoot in the United States, um, uh, uh, the name of which may be familiar to people, uh, baby bonds, uh, but very robustly by a couple of colleagues of mine that talk about um, large amounts of, uh, of finance being uh, given at birth according to the wealth of that family. So that, you know, Bill Gates' kid may get a buck and somebody else might get $5,000. Um, so that as that grows, by the time that child becomes a young adult at 18, they're, depending upon how it's structured, something like thirty to $60,000 is available for higher education, for business development, for human development, for entrepreneurship. Um, and uh, that's a proposal that's been put out there by Sandy Darity and, and Derek Hamilton. Thank you very much. I'm going to have to conclude there. I'm sorry for those of you who didn't get your questions asked, but thank you all very much for attending and for a very stimulating talk from both of you. Thank you.